Are you looking to learn more about investing in the central Indiana real estate market? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast with TNH Realty, where we discuss all things related to investing in the central Indiana real estate market. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast with TNH Realty. I'm your host, Jeremy Tallman with TNH Realty. We are a residential property management company that services the central Indiana market. Our topic today is the Marion County Sheriff's Sale. And with me today are two distinguished guests who spent a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money at the Marion County Sheriff's Sale over the years. Something different about these guys, they've used their own money, which is a little different than the people that are down there today using corporate money, Wall Street money, whatever you have. These guys have kind of built their businesses using a lot of their own capital and a lot of their own decision-making goes into that process. So first is my business partner of 21 years. He's the H to my T, and that's Scott Holberg with TNH Realty. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hi, how you doing? It's great to be here. I, yeah. I love this uh, new podcast that we're doing. Yeah. Second is a long time, uh, second guest is a long time sheriff sale warrior. Uh, he's the owner of After Properties here in Indianapolis, and that's Gary After. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate you letting me uh, participate in this today. Sure. So first off, Scott, you and I have traveled similar paths as being business partners for 21 years, but I guess tell everyone a little bit about yourself and, and how you got started doing all this stuff. Sure. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I've been your business partner for over 20 years and uh, currently the vice president of Teenage Realty Services. I'm over operations and I'm also the president of Teenage Management, our real estate investment company, which unfortunately isn't very active today because of the market, right. but uh, it's something that maybe someday we'll re-engage in. Prior to real estate investing and property management, I have 10 years experience in accounting and business operations. I've worked at various companies ranging from um, other small businesses up to Fortune 500 size businesses. As you mentioned, we both have similar educational backgrounds. I have a bachelor's from Indiana University and a master's in business administration from University of Indianapolis. I got my real estate investing started in 2000 when we bought our first rental business, not too far from our office, just right down the street. We had original plans of buying one a year, but it went so smoothly. We ex accelerated our plans quite a bit. And by 2003, we started a second company for real estate investing and flipping homes. And that's the year we attended our first share sale. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, that was uh, a lot of a lot of fun, a lot of hard work. And then by 2005, our real estate investing holdings and our investing activity was able to support ourselves full time. So we left our corporate jobs, and by about 2000, late 2006, early 2007, we uh, started a third party property management business and formed Teenage Realty Services. So after 15 years, uh, that business has grown to, you know, now we're managing over 980 units. Right. Yeah. Knocking on a thousand units on the door than a thousand units. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a long, long journey to get there for sure. So, all right, Gary, um, I guess tell everyone about yourself and like Scott did, like how you got started in this and I guess what you're doing today. Well, similar uh, background in, in that uh, I'm, I'm also an IU graduate. I got a bachelor's degree in business administration at IU and then went on and got my MBA also from IU. So we have that in common. 
When I got out of graduate school, I worked for a commercial real estate company. Basically, I was an acquisitions analyst, crunching numbers. We were buying some commercial properties, and they would syndicate those uh, properties into limited partnerships. And then moved on to a large multifamily mortgage company. We specialized in underwriting FHA mortgages on apartment complexes throughout the country. So I did a lot of traveling uh, for the company, doing site visits, and uh, became an underwriter and, and eventually an assistant vice president with that company. And there was a time frame in the late 80s, the program, which was a sort of quasi-governmental program that allowed a private company to underwrite FHA mortgages, was discontinued. So all of a sudden, 100% of that company's business ceased to exist. And I thought, what can I do here? And I started looking at sheriff sales and, and went down to the Marion County Sheriff's Sale and did a little exploration and, and started buying properties down there. And 31 years later, I have still stayed with buying sheriff's sale properties throughout uh, central Indiana and you know other methods of buying and really focused on primarily flipping homes, uh, built a small rental portfolio but my primary thrust was flipping the houses. So right. that's uh, in a nutshell, that's my background. Yeah, you know, Gary, I got a couple of memories I'll share about you. I, you know, we, between you and Scott and me, we, we Scott and I were big competitors of yours. I mean, let's just put it on the table. We, we competed pretty hard against each other. Yes, we did. And, you know, so there's obviously some, you know, gamesmanship there, but I will tell you this, and I never wanted to flatter you back then. And I guess I can today is that, I remember talking to our realtor at the time because when Scott and I first started, we didn't, you know, we weren't realtors and we had a guy named Brian Sanders who was our realtor. And he's like, Hey, I want you to take a look at this guy I've been hearing about. His name's Gary Apter. Jump onto the tax records and look him up. And I'm like, okay. I went out there and looked and I'm like, oh my God, how could someone own all this real estate? Like you, you were, you were like, you were the guy that we wanted to aspire to be because you you were so successful and it and bought had owned so many properties. So you know, then another I know another time when we were first starting to buy down there, uh, I was actually I think Scott had went full time T and H at that point, but I was still working a, a day job. And but I remember calling you. I literally remember where I was in my building and called you. And you returned you returned my call, which I was really surprised because we were competitors and I picked your brain about how you do your rehabs. Like do you use contractors? Do you have employees? And, and you took some time to share some information with me, which I thought was very gracious of you to kind of open up your playbook. So just thought I'd share that with you. I don't think I ever have before <laughs> because we go back a long way. You and Scott and I go back a long way and in, in things that we've done. So. Yeah. I'd like to just add to that, you know, of all the characters that are down there and there's a, a wide variety of characters. Now there's a lot of companies that come down there, but you know, I always had a lot of respect for what you did, Gary, as being one of the role models for us and doing things the, you know, ethical way. And, and even though it was very competitive and we, we battled on a few deals, you know, we always walked away in, in good spirits and there was always a good, good behavior from you. And, and I hope we did the same, but sometimes you saw some heated, <laughs> some heated arguments and some different things. And we, I, I always had this uh, most respect for everything that you did. So. Yeah. Well, I likewise, I really have a lot of respect for you guys. And as you know, we ended up partnering on a few really nice deals together because mm -hmm. you know, we did respect each other and we all brought things to the table that, that blended well. And, you know, we did some nice deals together too. So. Uh, 
Yeah, we did. I think I think the only seven figure deal Scott and I ever did was with you in terms of sale price. The one on, that we did on guys that was that was yeah, fun. and that's the time I wish you weren't there so we could have <laughs> not shared the profit. But right, that's right. So yeah, at least I, at least I was only one third, and you guys had two thirds. So that's right. It, that's how we did it. It worked out very well. So yeah. All no, right, guys. No complaints. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm excited to hear this topic today, guys. There's a lot of stories. We can provide some good education, uh, educational content to everyone who's interested in maybe plunging into the Marion County Sheriff Sale. But before we get into today's topic, something we like to do on this podcast is, is go over some current numbers. And we get, I'm a licensed broker, and Gary, I think you are too. You get numbers. I don't know if you pay attention to them, but you get numbers from my board every month through an email that kind of compares year-over-year year comparisons with the previous month. So I want to look at a little bit about July of 2022 compared to July of 2021. So just a, three quick numbers here. There was an increase of median sale price, 13.3% from July 2021 through July 22. Our median sale price as of July 2022 last month was 294500 Now, if you remember, those of you who listened to the, the podcast last month, we hit 300000 in June of 2022 is our median sale price. So while we were down a little lower from month to month, year over year still was a 13.3% increase. The two other numbers though are interesting. The first is that there's been a decrease in closed sales of 12.1% and a new listings decrease of 8.5%. So this indicates that our market is slowing. So do any of you two have any opinions about these numbers that you want to go over? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of mirrors the national numbers. I'm a sort of a economics junkie and listen to a lot of shows and read a lot of things about the real estate market. And even though I'm not a licensed broker, I uh, follow it pretty closely. And it seems like, you know, with the inflation fears and the Fed's response by raising interest rates, it definitely has slowed and put some people on the, on the sidelines. It slowed the market a little bit. But overall, I mean, it's still really, really strong in my opinion. I mean, you're seeing asking prices are are still 100.7% you know, over our historical average, which is around the high 90s. So we're still getting over this price for on average and uh, even though the number of closings are down, it's still really, really strong. I think the average price per square foot is still really high and prices aren't going to go down, in my opinion, because of the overall shortage in, in inventory. And that's obviously compounded by lower building permits on new construction. So the existing housing stock has to be served by everyone that wants to buy a house. And it's just still low. Our inventory is still just one month worth of inventory, and that's historically low. Yeah. Here in Marion County. Yeah. Gary, your thoughts? No, I, I agree with Scott. Um, I think there's a little bit of, you know, the media sort of has to have things to talk about and, oh, is the housing market going to crash and that kind of thing. But, but the reality is, you know, as you guys know, being property managers, rents are high. And so even with a rise, rise in the interest rates, your mortgage payment is still going to be less than most rents. So people still want to buy, they still want, you know, equity and ownership and all that that comes with, with real estate. I think the main difference is, you know, earlier in the spring, I would list a house and within the first 24 hours, we would have 30 offers and it was just, you know, list price was the starting point. 
And I think there's going to be a little bit less or, of a feeding frenzy. But so you're probably going to get list price instead of, you know, 20,000 over list price. But, you know, historically, you know, me having been in this business for a long time, you look back and these are still really low interest rates relative to the last 20, 30 years. So I think we're going to have a slight softening in the market, but it's still, uh, it's, it's gone from a frenetic, crazy market to just a reasonably strong market. So Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've talked about interest rates a lot on here. We've talked about how they are relatively still very low. Um, Gary, do you remember the first house you ever bought and what your interest rate was? Any, any, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you remember it all? I, I actually do because it was the first home I ever bought as an owner occupant mm-hmm. so before I was even in this business. And I was able to secure the below market interest rate of 13.5%. Right. And only yeah. because the loan stayed with the same bank, they offered that rate. Rates were about 18% market. And I remember being in the business of flipping homes when rates went into single digits and we all lost our mind going, oh my God, it's, it's a 9.375 interest rate. Right. So relative to that, we're doing fine today. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I guess I'll close it on this. I, I do think we're in a period in our market. I was talking to Devin Hicks. He's our main broker here with, with our company. And you know, she's got a few homes under contract this week and because there are some better buying opportunities, it's still hard. I mean, it's still hard, but there are people that are that are kind of on the sidelines waiting out these interest rates. There's there's renters who are deciding to stay renters um, and not enter the market, which is, you know, helping that supply a little bit and the demand. Um, so, yeah, I think there's some buying opportunities out there and we'll just see how it all unfolds. But Okay, let's move forward. I, I mean, I'm going to say this topic is something that I'm excited about. There's, there's, in, in all the things we've ever done in real estate, we've done a whole lot of things in real estate. The share sale is probably one of the most exciting, I guess. You know, getting that rush of the auction. There's so much work that goes into it. We just spend days reviewing homes, reviewing numbers back when the sales were huge. And it all kind of culminates in that hour or two hour share sale where you're, you're putting all your money on the line and you're battling people and you're hoping people don't bid, but there's just that auction rush that you get, the auction fever. So I'm excited to kind of tear into this topic a little bit today. So Gary, you're probably more equipped or better qualified at this point, because Scott and I haven't been to a sale in a while. We still look at the list every month, but we look at it and go, nope, 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 nope. Tell us, and I know there's been a a change of guard down there. There's been a a lot of rule changes. Can you kind of give everyone a background of, of, exactly what a sheriff sale is and then how it works today. Sure. So, you know, a sheriff sale is really, people think of it as they go, are you going to the auction? Well, it's only an auction if people show up to outbid the bank. It's really the vehicle the bank uses to gain title to the property, to repossess the property. Unlike uh, an automotive loan, they can't come tow your house away. So they have to gain title. And when you buy a car, if you have a a loan on it, they have the title. Well, in real estate, you record the deed, you have title. So it's the methodology the bank goes through to get possession title to the house. Well, now people show up and bid on it and it becomes a sheriff's auction. Uh, And the process through the legal process, it's also to clear other judgments and liens that might be on the property. So the bank gets clear title. Um, As far as how it has changed, It is day and night. 
used to show up and there'd be at Marion County, several hundred properties on the sale. Um, and really just a, a surprisingly a small, as you know, hardcore group of investors that understood the process and were there every month. Nowadays, the volume is maybe 10% of what it used to be. And uh, the number of buyers is actually greater. So the competition is just insane. We used to see four or 500 houses on a sale, and maybe there were a dozen people bidding on those. Now you see maybe 40 houses on a sale and 30 or 40 people bidding on those 40 houses. Um, yeah. It's much more complicated as far as the rules now, uh, particularly in Marion County, you have registration, pre-registration, um, all sorts of forms that you have to fill out. You used to be able to show up with some checks and you'd hand them in and then you'd stand there and bid. Nowadays you raise paddles and they write, they call out the numbers. It's just, the whole thing is complete. You guys would lose your mind if you went down there and saw how different it is. <laughs> well, I mean, I like, go ahead, Scott. It's a little intimidating now, it sounds like, but you're right over the years, you know, we've seen various different rule changes and every time, you know, we were like, oh, they added another rule just to make it harder for us. But now it seems like it's basically on, a, on, moon, on the moon now, you know, as far as the type of uh, investment uh, environment. Can, can you walk, Gary, can you kind of walk someone through, like if they wanted to attend a sale? And I know I, I don't need like an A to Z, but just kind of a general pathway. And, I, and, you know, people would probably want to call the sheriff's department or visit their website and get more information on exactly because the preparation does seem pretty intense now like you have to really have all your ducks in a row not only from what you're going to bid on but just getting yourself set up to bid and the money deposited and stuff like that so tell me tell me your normal process like you had a sale last week i know there was a marion county sheriff sale last week uh, there were all of i think what 60 total homes on the sale at least the main list when it came out i don't know about removals i'm sure a lot of those are removed but Tell everyone kind of what you do, like what's your process without giving away, you know, all your trade secrets, but can you guys just a procedural rundown of what you do? Sure. First of all, now at Marion County, so you can't just show up and decide to bid last minute, the day before, three days before. You have to do a pre-registration form that has to be on file. And if you go regularly, you just do that once a year. But if you decide to attend, you must do your pre-registration so if you're buying in an LLC, that means you fill out the form, you have to provide your LLC docs or corporate docs. Um, you have to be, they do a search, they make sure you're registered with the Secretary of State. You know, if you jump through that hoop and everything's fine, then you have to do a registration form subsequent to the pre-registration form, which is your deposit form. So you have to fill out the form, tell them how much money you're gonna bring, if you're a newbie, you then have to deliver those checks to them in advance of the sale. If you've been around, they allow you to just fill out that form and say how much money you will bring. Then once you've jumped through those hoops, uh, then, then a new step is you then have to fill out an affiliated entities form. So if you are affiliated with any other entities, LLCs, et cetera, because then they want to do sort of a background check to make sure that you're not behind on real estate taxes or have any municipality liens or judgments. Once you've jumped through those three things and you show up, you're registered, they hand you a paddle and they'll go through each property that's, that's uh, on the sale. 
they'll call out the opening bid, which is the bank's bid. And then if you want to bid, you just keep your paddle up and they literally go at lightning speed, $1,000 at a time. And so if a, if a bid starts at 100,000, she will go 101,000, 102,000, and everybody keeps their paddle up until they want to drop out. So not, and obviously you also have to do all your research on what you want to buy, how much you want to pay, and you keep that paddle up. And if you are called as the winning bidder, you, you're going to own that property. So it's a, it's a lot more tense, I think, than it used to be. So you don't actually call out bids anymore. You just hold your paddle up until, sh until the, the auctioneer stops calling out numbers. Correct. And, and I, I think that has caused an increase in, in bravery, shall we say, because I think it's harder sometimes to just verbalize that number, to, to say it yourself. Whereas you look around the room and you see all these paddles up and you go, oh, it must be a good deal. Just look at all those paddles. And I think it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that the prices go up to the advantage of the bank because people look around the room and go, well, I was going to drop out at say a hundred, but look at all those paddles. So I'll stay in longer. So it, it has made the, um, I think the bids go higher and higher and higher. Right. Because we, uh, I remember the strategy was always, you bid a dollar, like, you know, you may be, because we used to be able to bid in hundred dollar increments. Right. Yeah. Yep. And so you would bid, and sometimes when the, when the bid was crazy low, you'd see people jack up 5,000 a ton or whatever, but sure. you always had somebody bid like 100,100 because you thought maybe someone else's stopping point was 100,000 or some strategy in that. But um, so it's that, I guess that really changes the dynamic of that strategy as well. So interesting stuff. Yeah. I guess it also means that, you know, those bids don't drag out for you know, a long time. I mean, some of those bids, those battles for hundred dollar increments would last for, brutal. you know, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Brutal hundred dollar increment. Cause there's some guys down there would never go more than a hundred dollars. <laughs> it was just like, and if you got two of those together, just going a hundred dollars at a time, it was, it was brutal to listen to and wait through. But, okay. So for con Gary, I appreciate you giving us that rundown for context. Can each of you tell us how many homes or approximate number of homes, I know it might be hard to give as an exact number, that each of you have purchased at Sheriff Sale. Um, Scott, we'll start with you. Yeah, we started in 2003 and you know I ran some numbers and I don't have the exact number of homes we bought at the Sheriff Sale, but we, we've um, bought and flipped you know 238 homes. So I would venture to say that a good vast majority of those homes were purchased at the sheriff's sale. We, we always looked for on the open market as well, but I believe that most of those homes were bought at the sheriff's sale. Right. Gary, you're, you've been in a lot longer, but give us your, your number. Mine is more of a guesstimate, but I, I'm sure it's, it's close to a thousand. One, I, I went to my first Marion County Sheriff's sale in 1991. So I have that and, you know, I, I purchased a lot of homes outside of sheriff sales back when there were a lot of, you know, REO properties and HUD houses. So it's hard to say which ones were purchased at sheriff sale and otherwise. But, uh, you know, I know for, for years, typically I would buy at least three a sale. And, you know, if you've got 10 sales a year, I was buying 30 a year. And there were sales that I picked up seven, eight houses. So I'm, I'm going to guess that it's probably at sheriff sales. And that might include some other counties that I go to. Probably close to a thousand. Yeah, so you've done a, you've done a ton of deals. So I want to go back a little bit in time here and talk about that area in the sheriff sale because you know Gary, you said it's changed so much and 
It certainly has. Let's talk about that 2009-2013 range where we were coming off a housing crash. You know, 2007-2008 was a housing crash. And then starting in 2009-2010, we saw the share sales start to just load up. There were sales, I went back and looked at it, if you can believe it, that had over a thousand homes to start the sale. Now, some of those were removed, I'm sure. But if you just look at the original list that we all got, there were some lit, there's some months that were over a thousand. There were almost always at least 700 to 750 back in those time frames. So that's an enormous amount of work, I guess, for lack of a better term. So back in those days where there were so many homes available, and frankly, there were less buyers, as you mentioned, Gary, because banks shut down cash, right? I mean, it was, you had to be really, really good or have really, really good relationships with banks to get lines of credit back then. And a lot of people just got them shut down. So how did you guys navigate those sales? Because they were so big, there was so much work to do. Scott, can you start like, kind of go through what we did, our process that, you know, took a long, a lot of time and a lot of days that we devoted this thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it all started, you know, when we, we had a nice holding of rental real estate and that equity in those homes allowed us to work with our bank at the time to get a line of credit. And we use that line of credit to um, go down to the share sale and buy these homes. But you're right. I mean, we get the list. It was about two to three weeks before the share sale, typically. Yeah, I don't remember. I think probably around that. Yeah, it was, yeah. We, we had and a then we time. would, yeah. So we would make a first crack at it. We definitely had areas of towns that we liked, and then you and I split the city in half. So we we both had, you know, I had like the west side, and you had the east side, I believe. And I would um, identify, you know, all the junk and just eliminate those uh, first first batch. And we were, you know, we were pretty picky. We wanted to do mid to upper end um, homes. We weren't into the lower end purchases. Although we bought some cheap homes and we bought some ones that are pretty sketchy, but we tend to stay in that mid price and, and higher point. And so then we would spend multiple days driving around the city, you know, looking at each home, taking pictures of it, walking around it and, and writing up a report on each home. And so... That was a lot, a lot of time, a lot of gas, a lot of uh, mileage. Unfortunately, gas was cheaper back then. So, you know, so we did all that and then it came down to our final crunch. We used to meet uh, for lunch and talk about, um, you know, the, the, the final list and we would probably whittle it down to, I don't know, I mean, at the heyday, you know, maybe as many as 20, 30 homes still on our, on our hot sheet. But then we would go down to the sale, get our, we would make a mad rush to the bank and get our, our money. We don't want to get it out too early because we had to pay interest on that per day. So we would get it that morning and, and make a mad rush to the, to the sale, turn in our money, fill out, you know, at the time they had these big white boards that they would write all the, the opening bids on. And if they changed the color, you know, I think it started green. If it went blue, that means someone bid on it could be the other way around. But anyways, once it changed color, you know, you kind of cross-referenced, okay, those are ready for auction. And if there were ones that weren't changed yet and you wanted them, we had to fill out these bid forms to get the bid in to change it from the bank because otherwise the bank would get it by default. So once all that happened and they, you know, there's a mad rush to get in line, but you didn't want to get in too early. 
because you wanted there's that gamesmanship where you you want to try to let someone else turn it so you can just come in and, and bid on it. You didn't have to worry about that, but that gave more flexibility and in, in your in your final strategy. So I mean, you had to always keep in mind your your maximum amount of money. You know, the sheriff sale, they, the administrators and the sheriffs that were down there. You know, they had one particular sheriff that ran it, uh, Paula. She was very particular. Like if you bid over your money, man, you were you're in the world of hurt. You're going to be, yeah. you know, in big trouble. So we always had to worry about how much money you had and, and not overbidding your deposit. So yeah, the final strategy, they would start the bidding process and, you know, it would just be these lists and we'd have to calculate, you know, a running order of how much money we had and, and where we stood and, and the ones that we would get, we would check off and deduct it from our total deposit. And at the end of the day, you know, we would just try to bid all the homes that we were interested in. And in the heyday, yeah, we would, we, we would get two or three and then there were ones that we, we probably got a few more homes. And so we were buying every, every month and we were one right. of the main players at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I remember it was hard because it's almost like, you know, you, you had to know what your bank was like, well, I, I bid on number 400, but I, it's all, you know, the, I think it, they turned it red, Gary. Is that, was that what the color they turned it? If it was, it was a bit I, on think it? So. I think if we got challenged, it would go red. I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you always had to like, know, like, what do I have? What have I bid on already that I, that's coming up and what do I plan to bid on that maybe after properties bid on, but I'm going to go against Gary, but I know I can't go up too much. I've got to bank this money for the, for the balance of the sale. So it was, you really had to think quickly and it's, it's, it's a very pressure situation to begin with, but you're right. Paula would I think, kick you out of the sale and ban you from the sale if you, um, you overbid your bank. So Gary, tell us kind of how you did it. I mean, you had, you know, Scott and I did it mostly ourselves. I think we had some help maybe getting some numbers for us down at the sale when the numbers actually were written on the board, but tell us kind of how your, your team went about navigating one of the, the big Marion County sales. So somewhat similar. Um, I was probably less selective than you guys. I had a little more broad area that I would buy in. So which meant we had to look at even more houses than you guys had to look at. So we, I had two guys who were, you know, my acquisition guys, and we would divide that massive list up into threes into different sections of town. And we would each cover roughly a third and go out and just pre-see tons of houses and have notes and we would just write similar to what you guys did we would write general notes about you know each of the houses as as the sales got larger and larger it, around that same time we started seeing some of these institutional investors coming in and realized that they were only going after like the the vinyl village tract homes so we did finally get to the point where we're like we can't look at those because we're not going to buy those so that made it a little bit easier in terms of, you know, determining what we would pre-see and what we wouldn't see. So we would run around for, you know, at least a week or so in advance and pre-see a lot of houses and write a lot of notes. And then as the bids would come out, then we go, oh, that one dropped. That's a really good bid. We might go back and get a closer look at that house. And when we'd get to the sale, we'd probably have a list of we called it our, our POI list, property, properties of interest. And we would have this long list and it might be, you know, 45 houses that we'd be, we would be interested in bidding on. And then like, like you said, Scott, you 
run and grab your checks that morning. You would, you know, try to figure out how much you could potentially buy. And we'd get like maybe 10 different checks because you had to leave the amount to cover your bid, but you didn't want to leave a bunch of extra money because we might have a sheriff sale we'd go to in another county the next day. So, um, and there was the strategy of, you know, let's see if somebody else bids that so I don't have to commit that money uh, during the process to make sure again that you don't spend more than you have on deposit. But the pressure back then was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I know the night before the sale, there were times in those huge sale days that we would be, the three of us would be at my office till 11 o'clock at night. I would get home at midnight, get up the next morning and go right back, you know, running around looking at things. Uh, it was uh, it was very, very intense with the, with the sheer volume that that existed back then. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I want to talk about it because it was so different and it was, there was just so much work involved. At the same time, God, there was such a feeling when you walked out of that city county building and you're like, damn, we just bought like three really nice properties. You know, there was nothing like it. I mean, it wasn't, and it, it was almost Christmas that evening or the next morning. You're because sometimes, let's be honest, you don't get into those houses all the time. Sometimes they're occupied, most times they're not. But and sometimes you do get into the houses, you know, through various methods, we'll say. But you know, it was just, it was always so fun. I just enjoyed that rush so much. Just was a was a great time. But so I want to talk about because you know we've all bought, you know, we bought a bunch of homes down there, the three of us. Tell us your craziest deal that you've done. There's been some, you know, I'm sure twists and turns to some properties you bought and some really interesting stories. I'm sure someone needs to write a book about the Mary County Sheriff's Sale and compile all a list of the, of the great stories down there. I'm sure there's a lot. But Gary, start off, what, what was the craziest deal or deals that you can remember doing down there? Well, I would definitely say the craziest deal was I believe it was they were called Keystone Towers at the point at that point in time, and it was a high-rise apartment building, kind of in midtown, and the bank was owed maybe towards twenty million dollars that they were foreclosing on, and they bid four hundred thousand dollars on this $20 million judgment. It was a, I forget how many hundred unit apartment tower that was vacant and had been vacant for a long time. So we, we actually partnered with a couple others, I did uh, with two others. And there was a large apartment owner that was down there. And I thought they, they just assumed they would just, you know, they weren't regular attendees. They would just come in and bid. They kind of had it in with the with the attorney for the bank, and we outbid them and bought it for six hundred thousand dollars. At that point, we're like, now what do we do? It was a little outside of our normal comfort zone, right? And there was an argument with a huge amount of delinquent real estate taxes owed. Well, the law had just recently changed that said that the bank had to had to pay those taxes out of proceeds. And they said, no, we had to. And then there was an argument. Well, the apartment owner who thought that they would be the ones buying this kind of came in and said, we'll make a deal. And 
offered to buy us out and they bought, somebody stayed in, but uh, they bought me out. I never even had to technically take title for more than a few days. And they, they gave me a hundred thousand dollars and my money back to walk away. So that was, that was kind of interesting. I didn't have to really do anything, but put up a couple hundred grand. I was a third partner and I got my 200 grand back plus a hundred and it was all settled and done in about a week. Wow. Uh, what? So that, that was at Keystone on Keystone, you said? Yeah, it was at the point of where Benford and Allisonville actually come together on the southern, southern point of that. For some reason, it was called Keystone Towers because it was sort of <laughs> near Keystone. Right. Uh, right. But uh, it was a really famous apartment complex. Some of the ex-ABA Pacers had lived in there and it was kind of a city unto itself. But it's sort of gone downhill and been mismanaged and they, uh, they were eventually torn down. Right. I was going to say, I was going to ask that. that. I thought they probably, yeah. But yeah, that was an interesting one. Uh, I'll throw in a second one, which is one of my two acquisitions guys went to the wrong house Mm -hmm. and I bought the wrong address. And the one I bought probably should have been demoed. And it it was a lengthy rehab that I ended up, I believe, breaking even on. Um, So, you know, one good one, one bad one there of my my uh, craziest deals. Well, that's that's a good deal if you buy the wrong house and can break even sometimes. Yes, yeah. I guess like, I could, you know, yeah. There was some pain <laughs> getting to that break even, though I will say. Right, right, all right, Scott. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, we've had quite a range of deals too. I mean, we've had. Uh, you know, majority of the homes we bought were, were vacant, but we've had several that had occupants and that range from strange and deceptive type situations where, you know, spouse didn't even know the house was lost and, and other deals where people were just in really dire situations. And it was a really sad story and we had to kind of help sort that out. But one deal in particular that was uh, occupied was a condo we bought not too far from our office, probably two blocks from our office, matter of fact. And yeah, it was kind of a strange deal where it was a recently redeveloped old apartment complex. It was really cool historical apartment complex and they converted it to a condo development. And so that only been like that for a few years and we couldn't believe one came up through the sheriff's sale already. And so we really were on the fence. I think it might've been a sale that we really got shut out on some other deals. And this was kind of like a backup plan. And the thing that was odd about it is we really couldn't get in and look at the house or the unit because it was one, a locked situation where we couldn't get into the building. And then itself, like the unit didn't have, you know, it was like a, I forget if it was like fifth or sixth floor unit, but you know, it, we couldn't look into windows and really check much about it. Um, so we kind of bought it sight unseen, but we figured, okay, it was recently redeveloped into a condo. It probably wasn't in that bad of shape. And we kind of had the floor plan and knew the, what the home should look like. So we went ahead and bought it and took the plunge. It was a really good deal. Uh, we were surprised that, you know, the mortgage was very low and it went through and, and uh, we bought it. So I guess, this, I guess the next day we finally went to the got in there and tried to get access to the unit and found out it was occupied. And there's a young male that lived there. And I can't remember, I think I believe it was probably you that contacted him. And he was like, Oh man, I'm going to, this is a big mistake. I'm going to, I'm going to get this house back. And, you know, we've heard that story before and we, 
we're like, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, why'd you let it go through foreclosure? If, if you're, you know, you can get the money to, to sort this out. And he's like, I'm going to have my financial advisor call you. And, and uh, we're like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, we'll, we'll have to evict this guy. I'm sure. So long story short is that sure enough, a couple of days later, we got a call from a financial advisor. He explained a situation that the guy had a trust fund. He just blew it. He just didn't respond to the notices. He had a low mortgage just for tax purposes and just blew it off and, and just it, let it go through foreclosure and that he wanted to stay and he wanted to buy it back. So we sold the house to him, I think at market value and he, he ended up buying it twice, but he stayed and we never really even got into unit. Yeah, I don't think we even I don't think we even went in the unit. It was bizarre. He was, I think the guy that yeah, the, you're right. The financial guy called us and said the kid spent most of his time playing video games and just didn't didn't respond to anything. So he paid full market for it. He bought the house twice. We made good money on it and didn't have to do a thing except take a few phone calls and attend to attend to closing. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, we had some other deals that weren't so good. I mean, we've had, we bought some homes that were, yeah, we, we bought a pig and a poke and got the, got the poke, but you know, and then we bought a few, I think we did three or four homes that we ended up buying twice. Right. So they went for foreclosure, got, you know, righted, but then a few years later it went back through foreclosure again and we bought it for a second time. So yeah, we've had some, some funny deals. Yeah. I think the one that stands out to me the most is there was a house that we bought, a really nice house up on his north side. And we couldn't get through it. It was occupied, but it came in pretty low and we bid on it and we had some competition on it. I mean, it was, I think it got bid up tens of thousands of dollars, but we ended up buying it and we walked through it and the tax records didn't show it had a basement, but sure enough, it had a fully finished basement. So we're like, wow, this property is worth a lot more than we than we thought. It was in actually much better shape than we thought. The occupants, former owners at that point, were fine. They, they went ahead and vacated. Well, I remember us leaving the house. I think, Scott, it was you and me and then maybe Brian. And um, I get a call from the sheriff's department saying that the attorney's contesting the bid. They're going to try to set it aside, which means that they think it was an invalid sale. But anyway, long story short, we ended up going to a trial, a hearing over it, which the sheriff's department came and spoke in our defense. We had an attorney and it was obvious that the bank had no real defense. They just wanted to hold back because I guess they failed to send a representative down to bid on it. So we ended up getting a really good deal. Brian, in the meantime, was working with a buyer. Um, so as soon as that couple moved out, we sold it. I think made the most money I think we've ever made at a sheriff's sale on that deal. But it was just one of those that was just, it felt like seconds away from getting taken away from us because we, we had to go through a hearing, you know, and you never know what a judge is going to decide. But, you know, that had drama all the way through it. It ended up working out really, really well for us. So, Scott, you brought up something earlier about buying homes twice. You know, I know we've had our share of those. I think we own a house now as a rental that we've owned twice. Gary, I'm sure you bought, how many homes? What's your most time you've ever purchased a single property? I think it, it could have been five, but it was definitely four times. There was one in Boone County, Indiana that I, I know I bought it as a HUD house and rehabbed it and sold it and 
couple years later, there it was again, I think as a HUD house. Then it came back a few years later as a sheriff sale. And, you know, at that point, there, there was maybe the fifth time I might have said, I'm just not going to buy this. It looks like I'm doing something wrong here. <laughs> Even though I wasn't. It was probably back in the days of the non-conforming mortgages, you know, higher interest rates. They didn't escrow for taxes. And so people didn't really, you know, the lenders really didn't explain what they were getting into. But uh, I, I believe I bought the same house four times. Wow. Yeah, I don't think we ever did that, but we bought multiple at least twice, which is always interesting to do. But all right, so tell us, you guys are seasoned investors, been around a long time. What advice would you give new investors out there who are just starting out? Maybe they're looking at share of sale, or maybe they're looking at, you know, the Burr method of, you know, that that's so popular today or really hard to do today. But um you know, what would you give, what advice would you give new investors who were just starting out today? Gary, I'll start with you. Well, you know, personally, and I don't say this because I don't want competition. I, I wouldn't advise somebody to, to look at sheriff sales as a, as a good way to buy. I mean, quite honestly, I'm not buying much at sheriff sales because they are so competitive. You know, like I say, Marion County, when the number of bidders it equals or exceeds the number of available properties, you're not going to walk out of there with, with a deal. And in some of the smaller counties that I go to, you might have 30 people show up for three different properties. So I would, I would stick with more of the off-market type properties. You know, there are wholesalers out there. You get on their uh, emailing list. Um, you know, pre-foreclosures, I, I would sort of advise if you follow something, uh, a sheriff's sale and you see, wow, that's a, a pretty low balance, send out letters, go knock on doors, try to do it in, a, in, a, in an avenue that has less competition. Because by the time you go to a sheriff's sale, it's, if it's a deal, there's going to be a whole lot of people bidding on it. So that, that's my advice is try methods outside of sheriff's sales. And, and, you know, a lot of people are afraid to get out of their car and knock on a door and talk to the homeowner. And, you know, that can be risky. You may get an angry person. But that's that's sort of my advice is try the off-market pre-foreclosure, whether you send letters or go in person and knock on doors and try to buy directly. Right. All right, Scott, what, what advice do you give new investors? Start just starting out today. Yeah, I mean, to ditto what Gary said, I mean, obviously, competition's tough, so... I think, you know, since that's the case and, and margins are so thin, I think it's probably best suited to probably do more due diligence and get into the homes and try to probably find the deals that are just on the open market or more accessible. But I think the biggest advice and one of the lessons we learned the hard way, especially early on, is just planning for the restoration work and the rehab work and making sure you account for that properly and probably budget a little more, have a don't, don't assume you're going to beat your budget. Assume you're probably going to go over your budget every time. So have that extra margin, which is probably doubly hard today because the increased costs and labor and materials, and then the, you know, the increased purchase price in general. So it's a tough business to get into. Just be very careful. That's yeah. my advice. Okay. All right. Any regrets guys? What, anything that looking back on your, I guess, Scott, your 20 plus year history, Gary, your 30 plus year history. 
what would you have done differently? Scott, we'll start with you. Any regrets and things that you might've done differently? Well, you know, I don't have, you know, look, I, I, I try not to have too many regrets in life. I mean, we made the best decisions we could at the time for the most part, but I think if I had to nail down one is that, you know, I wish we would have held on to some of the homes we bought. Yeah. I mean, we had hellacious deals um, compared to today's market and yeah, we made decent margin on it, but man, if we would have held it and kept it in today's market, we, we would have made, you know, in some cases, probably five to 10 times the money. Right. Yeah. I, I echo that. I think that is absolutely the truth. I look back at a house that like, I'll drop some addresses here. Not exactly, but you know, we bought a house early on at 48th and Carrollton and Scott, you probably know the house I'm talking about. It was a great home. Um, we bought it for 60 grand and we sold it. We thought we made a fortune. We sold it for like 80 or 90,000, but the house today is worth three or four times that there's just some houses I wish we would have kept in our rental inventory. Sure, we like the money. It was nice to make money. That's how most years we made any money is by flipping homes. But, you know, I just wish we'd have probably kept a few more and frankly, just bought a few more intentionally to make as rentals. Uh, we still own a ton of rentals, but boy, I would like to own, own a few more. <laughs> I guess you could never have enough, but I, I totally echo that. Gary, any regrets you have, things that you'd have done differently over the years? Yeah, actually, I, I'm in agreement with you on that because... I really, I look back to the downturn, especially the 2007, 2010, you know, always thinking, boy, I should be buying rentals. And my aversion, you know, not having the property management company that, that you guys had, I was like, I just don't want the hassle. You know, I could have staffed up a couple extra people to, to handle that. And I wish I would have bought a lot more properties with the intent to hold long-term as rentals. And not just because there were so much more today, which they clearly are, but, you know, once you, if you don't have mortgages on them and they're paid off, you know, they're passive income. And so I, I would say if, if anybody, you know, out there listening, if we do get into any sort of a downturn, look, look to hold long-term. Don't right. be adverse to, to being, a, you know, more of a landlord than a flipper. I always was, I flip homes. But um, yeah, so my, my regret is not having built up a larger rental portfolio during that, particularly during that time frame. Right. Gary, I don't want to put you on the spot, but something occurred to me when we were talking here, because you mentioned this a while back in the sheriff's sale. Are you, are you done after this year? I know you said you may be. Have you made that decision? Are you, is Gary after out of the sheriff's sale after 2022? I, I waffle. Um, I, I'm consistently inconsistent in my decision-making process. I, I was going to stop at the end of this year, and I believe that I'm going to extend it one more year. Okay. Um, and but that's that, that's going to be it at the end. The, the worst case scenario or best case, whichever you look at it, is going to be 2023. It just isn't worth the effort at this point in time. And as I tell people. I'm in the twilight hours of my career at this point, so. Right. All right, guys, any closing remarks you want to make? I've, I've asked you all the questions I had. Any closing remarks you guys want to make about Sheriff's Sale? Any last things, just fun stories or anything you want to go over? You know, there is one thing that I would like to mention if anybody listening is going to go to Sheriff's Sales. One thing that uh, you guys might've seen a little bit of it, but industry has built up of 
law firms for closing on HOA liens. Mm -hmm. And so all that means is the homeowners association is for closing on the, the HOA lack of payment. They, they get a, a judgment and then they foreclose on that judgment, but it is subject to any and all underlying mortgages. And I've seen people in the last few years thinking, oh my God, this is, look at this great deal. I'm buying for you know $13,000 and they don't realize that they have $200,000 in underlying mortgages that are gonna be foreclosed on next. So, you know, do your due diligence because the, the number of HOA homeowners association liens being foreclosed is growing monumentally. I've seen some sheriff sales in some of the smaller counties. You know, there's maybe six properties on that month. Five of the six are homeowners association liens being foreclosed and not a first mortgage foreclosure. So that's just something for people to, wow. to be aware of. Interesting. Yes. Scott, any last minute things you want to go over? Yeah. I mean, I think we started seeing that right towards the end of when we were heavily involved, but I can imagine and I've heard through HOA management and other resources that that is a tactic that they're doing. And you're right. It gives that false sense. Wow. This house is dirt cheap and, and it really isn't, but um, yeah, I, you know, it's gonna be interesting to see long-term how this plays out. And, you know, we've been on the sidelines for a few years now, you know, buying flips and, and but, you know, obviously there's a lot of, there is some uncertainty in the housing market, what will happen. You know, a lot of people bought homes that, you know, may have stretched to buy homes, felt pressure to buy homes in these last couple of years. And we'll see, you know, if, if three or four years from now, if you're going to see an uptick again, it really depends on how the overall economy goes, I guess, if, if we move into, you know, some people are fearful there could be a recession, you know, maybe next year, and uh, that might increase the, the amount of uh, foreclosures ultimately. I guess they are, I, I just heard a story last night that, you know, auto uh, repossessions are on the, on the uptick, you know, because mm -hmm. auto prices have also been high and now people are struggling to pay their, their car loans. So could that happen in the housing market? I don't know, but that, that could be something that we have to look, you know, to, and if those opportunities increase in the future, I'm hoping to get back in the game and get back out there and buy, buy a few. Yeah, it'd be fun. I mean, for nothing else, I, it isn't, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens at the sheriff sale, you know, instead of 40, 50 homes, if we see maybe next year in the two or 300 homes, I just can't imagine we're going to, I don't see a housing bus like we had in 2007. I can't imagine those sales are going to get back to a thousand. Uh, but who knows? I mean, we'll see that it's, it's certainly uh, an interesting point where we are, but so guys, Hey, thanks so much for joining me. This has been great. We hoped everyone picked up a tidbit or two. that will help them in their investing. We'll be back next month with another podcast. In the meantime, we encourage you to share this podcast with your investing friends, leave us a review and don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and please stay invested in your investments.